from the Los Angeles Underground. It's time for your new favorite podcast, The Superiority Complex. It's like honey in your ear holes. Welcome back to the Superiority Complex, everybody. Your new favorite podcast. We're doing a spring break special. This is a second in a series of special one-on-one interviews. I'm taking a break and uh, just kind of taking things back to the root of the podcast, the way we used to do it back in the old days. Uh, you know, and speaking of the old school, I got an, uh, an old school type of type of guy here today. Not my type of guy, but the Buddy Rich tapes. <laughs> this guy... <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna flip it on buddy. I'm gonna say this guy is my type of guy. Uh he is well known on the Southern California music scene, has been for a long time. He brought a little bit of New Orleans to Southern California. And if you've been lucky enough to catch him live, you know what a special performer performer he is. Uh he's a drummer, he's a vocalist, he's a he's a jack of all trades. And uh, the reason we have him on the podcast today is because he's also something of a raconteur. If you don't know him yet, you will by the end of this show. Uh, may I introduce to you Mr. Kenny Seurat. How you doing, Kenny? Yes, sir. How are you? Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me. Who dat? Who? There it is. There it is. Uh, Kenny and I kind of, I used to, we kind of bonded a long time ago. We were both obsessed with the, uh, the Buddy Rich bus tapes. And then later on, we got obsessed with the with the Paul Anka tapes, and uh, so you might hear those being referenced uh, from time to time. So the guys get shirts. We're both wearing T-shirts right now. So Paul Anka would probably be having a field day right now if he saw us with no collars. It's it's a casual environment here at the Superiority Complex. So Kenny, you now you started out in New Orleans. Were you from a musical family, or how did how did your path in music start? I wasn't from a musical family, you know. When I when I started out in New Orleans at age 13, 1972, I played a, my first club date was age 30. That's why I say professionally. It was in Slidell, Louisiana, in the summertime. You know, in the summertime when in, in, in the South they would have these mosquito trucks. And these mosquito trucks would come out and spray the neighborhood and just be foggy, so foggy, and all this these chemicals from these mosquito trucks. And as kids, what we used to do is we would we would go outside and sniff the mosquitoes uh, repellent because we thought it would smell so good. So, oh, oh, that smells good. So in 1972, I started out at a place in Slidell, Louisiana, and it was like a little hole in the wall. Mosquitoes that use your body for an airstrip, you know. But... It was fun, you know. So I, that was my first professional break. It's 1972. Do you remember? And you were playing. You were a drummer. So I was a drummer. How yeah. did you get started in the? What what drew you to the drums in the first place? Well, according to the history, <laughs> the history of my mom, she said to pull the pots out of the on, from under the sink and bang on the pots, and then she would take the pots away from them and go back to get the pots. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what she said. So I, I guess I got to believe because I, I couldn't see myself. So I think uh, I, I, I took a liking to guitar at first, you know, because I used to have a little guitar when I got for Christmas, and I took a liking to that. But drums, I had a neighbor when I was living in the projects in Lafitte, projects in New Orleans. He was like across the banister from me, and he was like a drummer. And he had a little set, and one day he invited me up to his house and we played this song by Jimmy McGriff. I never forgot that on his record player called The War. Oh, we talked about this. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he, you know, he showed me and I was like sitting by his feet, you know, you know, but uh, I was really encouraged by that. So I think that's what really kind of gave me the bug, you know. You you told me a story about, we just talked about your mom before the show started. Your mom is 94. And uh, let me describe Kenny's mom. Kenny, she's she's small in stature, but she is a regal, regal woman, a very nice woman. But when you yes, see man. when you see Kenny's mom, yeah, you almost want to you almost want to curtsy or bow. So Kenny, <laughs> Kenny told me this story that he used to come home, and you you were obsessed with that song, "The Worm." And if you have never heard "The Worm" by Jimmy McGriff, pause this podcast right now. Hit ask Alexa or ask Google to, to look it up for you. It is one of the funkiest songs you ever heard, yeah. and yeah. it has got this drum in the beginning. There's this drum yeah. fill right in the beginning that yeah. is just like straight out of like I don't know how it has not been sampled by hip hop groups a million times. And then it's got this really funky uh, Jimmy McGriff on the organ. And it's got this guitar lick. And you told me you would come home and just play that loud. And your mom would scream at you. <laughs> yeah, but you know the thing was about that song, what was really hip. And I heard it the other day on my Alexa, you know, because I have a uh, I have a, 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 a station on uh, Pandora, Kenny Surratt and the Sounds and Longs on Pandora. So uh, that's a station there if you ever want to get to that. But the cowbell is the funkiest thing. Yes. The cowbell <laughs> is the thing that drives that tune. You know, it's like the intro, the drums, and the cow. Once the cowbell comes in, it's yeah. like. I-, I can hear it in my head right now. And I'm I'm, all, yeah, I'm, man. I'm tapping my feet and I got my head going. Yeah. And you told me you would come home and just pump that on your stereo and your mom would be. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, all of the 45s we had, we had maybe more than 245s. And my mom bought all the 45s. She bought all of them. You know, I was hip to Dakota Satan, all these people on Decca. And, but, you know, Jimmy McGriff, and it was a record that James Brown did on organ, um, uh, instrumental. It was all instrumental. Uh, what was the name of that tune? Um... I think, I don't know, but uh, James Brown was on the front cover, I remember, and he did, like, Try Me. He did uh, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag yeah. as an instrument. You know. you know what's funny? There's two James Brown tracks that are really hard to find, but they're worth finding. There's a there's a, a British magazine called Mojo, and they would send you, they'd give you a CD. The, the, the magazine was, like, 12, 13 bucks. It's probably, like, right. 20 years ago. And they would find all these alternative tracks you had never heard they put out a i don't know i can't i've not been able to find it since i have it on cd somewhere but it is james brown uh playing cold sweat on the piano on the on the piano with the band but instead of you know but he's doing the bass line and the whole thing on the piano he's like dun 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 on the piano and i it is crazy to hear and then he did an album with it was just the jb's so there's no singing, and he's in there doing doing whatever. But there's a song called, it's not Mother Popcorn, it's just called The Popcorn. And yeah, if, yeah. You, if you ever want to hear another funky tune that's just amazing, listen to, that's another one. But So your mom was into all this music already. Your mom, mom was the one. My mom was the introducement, and then when my brother came back from Vietnam, he bought Carlos, and he bought Jimmy back, and I was like enamored in those guys then, you know. But uh, yeah. my mom was was the record collector in the house, man. Yeah, that's that's funny. I had my my dad was the one in 
you know, my brothers had a lot of music, and that's where I got my love of like, like you said, Santana, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix. That was all yeah. my brother's era, you know, like Led's Up and all that stuff. But my dad, yeah. my dad was the one that was. My mom was fifties, so she was into the R and B and the doo wop. Right, right. But my dad was the one that was into Ray Charles. He was he was the one that got me into jazz. You know, he used to call it progressive. You know, he called bebop progressive. He's yeah. like, he's like, why don't you get yeah. some of that progressive stuff like Dizzy Gillespie? Yep. You know, yep. you know what it's called. <laughs> yeah. Tommy Jefferson would say too. You know, when the guys, when the guys, younger guys would be playing jazz, man, that's not Dixieland jazz. That's progressive jazz. <laughs> <laughs> that's progressive jazz. And Can I was always, and I was, my mom said the same thing. That's progressive jazz. And so I'm always like. What is progressive? <laughs> it means it's moving it forward. You're out of the swing era or out of Dixieland yeah. and you're into, yeah, my dad was all over the map. You know, he, we'd listen to, you know, he told me stories about going to downtown LA and seeing Count Basie live and, and yeah. seeing Duke Ellington at the Orphe. And then he loved, he loved, he used to call it Afro Cuban. You know, he's like, Hey, right. let's get some, let's get some, uh, some, some Cal Jader. Let's get, you know, he, yeah. he, he was all over the place. And then my brother told me, my brother told me a story. He go, my dad passed away. It's been, 20 some years now but i have his love of music he, he goes man when when uh when when rock steady by aretha franklin came out he goes dad made me go buy that record and then he wore it out because he would just keep playing rock steady over and over and over so he was all over the place you know so it's funny to get that musical love from your parents because i feel and like that it, drum part on rock steady was bad too so that it is that's a, that whole thing anything with that yeah. that era is and it's if you look beyond just because you mentioned Jimmy McGriff if you pick up a Lou Donaldson album from that era uh, it's the funkiest stuff you've ever heard so there's a there's stuff that off the beaten path that you got to go out and kind of find but it, it, as far as you were Kenny in the, in New Orleans itself. What kind of music's coming in from outside? Because we, everybody th tends to think of New Orleans as like just Dixieland or just jazz. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think one thing growing up in New Orleans for me, because when I started out, I started out in a funk band, you know, and in the latter years, I, I um, my band director had a professional dance band that we would play all the Mardi Gras balls. So I learned all, I actually learned all these big band tunes. I learned because it was a, like a, a semi big band. And then, like, I guess around 77 or so, I wanted to venture out to Bourbon Street because uh, I went to college. I went away to college for two years in Texas Southern. And I came back to New Orleans and I wanted to, you know, kind of hang out a while. So I went to a, a college, Dillard University. And then I went. Started trying to pursue Bourbon Street, but I didn't know anybody. So I would go and just kind of hang out and just listen to bands. And But, you know, in terms of that, that's kind of the... I played all different types of music. It wasn't just one style of music. It, it was a lot of music, a lot of different... Because I heard we heard so much of music. Yeah, because um, <clears throat> if you look at some of the other bands that come out of... Think of all the people that come out of New Orleans. Uh, people like... You got Lee Dorsey, Alan Toussaint, the Neville Brothers, the Meters, mm -hmm. Dr. John. Then you got mm -hmm. guys like Professor Longhair, James Booker. That's all. Mm -hmm. That's every kind of style that you're taking jazz, you're taking R&B, you're taking everything and you're kind of mixing it up. And so was that difficult to learn how to play all those different styles or was it were you just at the right age to pick all that up? 
No, man. You know, one thing one thing that we did in New Orleans is probably more than half of these young cats, they don't read music. So a lot of times, you know, I read an article where John Baptiste was saying he was taking classical lessons from his piano teacher and he would ask her to play it for him because he played everything by ear. She told him, no, you're going to learn how to read it. So I think the one thing is we learn to play music, as they say, by ear. Yeah. So if you heard something or you, you know, you want to mimic it, you know, you can you can get a guy to mimic music just by hearing it. So I think a lot of that there was really no uh, musical training because we couldn't afford it. And we didn't really know what that was. There, there were schools around, but they weren't like affordable, you know. Sure. So you're just going you're going from gig to gig. Learn. And now you told me once that you would be playing Bourbon Street and then another band would need you to fill in later that night in like a funk band somewhere else in, in that yeah. part of town. So yeah, you would just be. How, did like, that all day. We did that all day. You know, there was the there was the, the gig, the one gig. <laughs> we'll get into that later. The one gig that on Bourbon Street was called the Maison Bourbon. Okay. That was the daytime gig where. Every, you know, if you if if you get a daytime gig, you can work at night. So after a while of trying to get in there on the whole click and learn that, the thing was, I was always trying to not play the same thing every day, because it was just I know I was how I was. So I would you know play funk gigs at night. If I'm playing in Bourbon Street, I play the New Orleans jazz Dixieland gigs in the daytime, and it would just mix it up, you know, and and. And it would never be the same because the music was always changing. Yeah. Well, what was your favorite style of music to play back then? Did you like playing the daytime gigs or were you happier at night? Actually, you know, I was young, so it didn't matter to me. <laughs> you know, As long as you were playing. As long as I was playing and, you know, the, the gigs on Bourbon Street would be seven hours. Wow. Yeah, this stand that's that's a standard Bourbon Street gig that back then seven hours, and you know you might do a night gig for four hours, but you just play seven hours, so you like bring it on. You know what I'm saying? What it wasn't know, no, What part of of uh, New Orleans did you grow up in, Kenny? Grew up in the, in the Tremere, Six Ward. Okay, so you're the Six Ward. So Bourbon Street, are you just you're just walking? Are you walking down to down to Bourbon oh, Street? No, I think but at the time when I started playing Bourbon Street, I had a car by then. And uh, I think my first experience when I was like 18, when I went to see Thomas Jefferson. Oh, we got to talk about Thomas Jefferson because. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, actually, I was trying to get in on a click and he was the, that was the first place that I went to. But he was playing the daytime and he always played daytime. He never played nighttime. So. Uh, you know, I had a car, so you know when I started playing in, in, in the clubs, you know, I had a little, had a car and I could drive to work. But when I, you know, uh, my my family they moved like the Earth Line area, which is still a six water, but we I grew up in the Tremere area, so which is like uh, the Claiborne, Orleans Avenue, you know, clubs like Prouts. Man, there were tons of clubs where they had great entertainment. You know, they would have all these, like, uh, sometimes, uh, uh, what's his name? The trumpet player. Uh, well, they will play, like, avant-garde jazz, you know. Okay. It's really, like, yeah. Like Ornette Coleman kind of stuff? 
All that Coleman kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. All right. Free jazz, they would call it. Free, free jazz, maybe. Or yeah, avant-garde stuff. Yeah. Avant-garde. Yeah. Uh, and then, so you're doing all these gigs now. Are you making good money, or is it just your, what's the, what's the money situation like? Well, the money situation, if you played five days a week, seven hours a day, you made $55 a day. And you had tips. Oh, not so back in back in, in in that time, that was good money. So if you come out of there with twenty five, thirty dollars tips, you what do you got? Seventy five, eighty dollar a day. Yeah, you do that, and that's back in the in the in the seventies. You know, a week. You know, like what two seventy five a week plus your tips. That's back when that's back back when the dollar was a dollar. Dollar was a dollar, baby. 25 cents for gas, 40 cents for gas. You, you, you rake it, man. You know, now let's talk about, uh, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, you, you've mentioned this guy to me before you, you have a lot of stories about this guy and he was kind of an old school cat, right? He was an old school guy. Uh, he was, he was old school. What kind of, he was old. So he's, Go playing, he's got a bunch of young guys in his band now. Is what's happening, right? So he's playing like no, no, he never, never had no young guys. Oh no, no, really? That, oh, ever? I, oh, never? <laughs> ever? Are you crazy? No, man, not this guy. I mean, so, so you know, Thomas Jefferson was a true character, and you know, he was, he was, you know, one of those guys was destined to be the next Louis Armstrong, and you know. But he loved his gauge, and he was just kind of crazy in the head. So you know, he would, he would, he would. You know, uh, as a matter of fact, you know, we, used to, you know, the older guys they knew him so well they would mess with his head, like on the brakes and stuff. They would say, "Hey, Tom, man, I just came back from China, man. We flew over the black hole, man. That was some scary stuff." He said, "Man, you don't want to fly over the black hole." So he never went to Europe. So, <laughs> Oh, he never went to Europe. I mean, this guy was, he was a talent. So, so when, when people would say, hey, Tom, when you're going to, you know, the you know, people, Southern, the Swedish people, the Europeans will come over and say, when are you going to come to Europe? No, I ain't coming to Europe. You got to fly over that black hole. <laughs> you know? so, so, but, it, you know, they told him this story, but they didn't tell him he, he didn't have to fly over the black hole he went to Europe. He says, no, man, you got to fly on that black hole. I ain't flying on no black hole. And I'm like, dog, right? I ain't flying on no black hole. You come here, you come here and see me. You know, so, so you know, that was this whole thing. You know, he didn't want to fly on the black hole. Yeah. So he never went to Europe. You, you told me he would also, uh, something about he would only eat soup out of the, what would he do with his food? He, he would only buy. Or- well, this, this, is, this was his thing. You know, he he was he he was a band leader for years. I mean, all the club owners loved him because he was a great entertainer. As a matter of fact, we did when I put in a set list, uh, "Please Come Home, Bill Bailey." My memory of him doing that song, he stopped the show, man. He was a showman, you know. And he would, you know, like if the place was crowded, it was really buzzing. He turned his trumpet upside down and played. You know, like <laughs> play upside down. But, you know, 
Yeah, he was he was like a showman, man. You know, <laughs> he plays trumpet upside down, like the keys will be on his on the bottom. He's fingering up, but now realizing, you know, we got these spin valves, and the, and the spin is going right back into the trumpet. You know, <laughs> so, but you know, he did it didn't bother him. Did. So what happened? So what happened is, you know, when I first met him. Uh, that was in, in, this, in uh, I just came out of college and I went to explore Berkshire. I was, I think I was, I think it was 19, 18, 19. And I was standing in the doorway, I was listening to him. And I got enough guts to say, I'm going to go ask him to sit in. So I go up to the stage. This place is packed, right? I said, uh, I said, uh, what I call it? I said, Mr. Jefferson, could I sit in? Sit in? <laughs> sit in? Man, you don't know this music. You know, nothing about no jazz. Sit in. And then there's people right down front, right? He's holding this conversation about me sitting in with this guy who's got a beer. And the poor guy is looking at me. Hey, man, I'm just here trying to get some music. Or, you know, and drink a beer. This cat don't know nothing about no music. These young cats, they just want to do everything. You got to go learn his music, man. You got to learn his music. Before. No, you can't sit in. You got pissed in, right? Yeah. So, so what happened is... You know, I stood in the doorway for a long time because I was so embarrassed. By the time I walked through the place, I felt like I was like two feet tall because he just tore me down in front of everybody. Sure. And he kept doing it while he was playing, right? The cat want to sit in. What's wrong with these cats? So anyway, <laughs> I stand in the doorway and I'm waiting for him to come on break and I because I, I want to talk to the drummer. And I started talking. He says, man, you, you cats don't know how hard this life is. This is hard, man. This is hard. Listen, before I left the house, I had to eat beans out of can, man, with, on a hot plate. That's what he said. I had to eat beans out of can, man, with, on a hot plate. I said, okay. All right, Tom. All right. I get it. You know, I get it. You don't know, man. I got to press my own clothes, you know. I got a. I just had beans out of can on a hot plate. That's how he was. You know, you know. But hey, you know, that's that's the kind of old school. But one thing I I really respect, and I look back on it, I had to go learn. There was there's more than two hundred and three hundred songs you got to really learn before you start to play that circuit. And that's where I got the idea with the with the sounds in the walls. That's why we had so many tunes because. You know, you have to have a lot of tunes and learn a lot of tunes because people would ask you for all different types of tunes. So the the, the you've, you're referencing the sound of New Orleans and the sounds of New Orleans is a band that Kenny ha, uh, is still going. Uh, yes, and the, the 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 iteration of the band that I was most familiar with was uh, it was Kenny on the drums. Then you had uh, now Richard had about ninety nicknames. I can't remember them all. But one of them Richard was Richard Domino, Bad Shorts, T3, Golden Child Tales. That's right. Richard Taylor on the keyboard bass. So you didn't have a bassist. Richard would be playing all the, the bass parts on the keyboard. It was insane. And then you had uh, Johnny, the late, the late great Johnny Turner. God bless him. Uh, mm-hmm. John, Johnny Turner was kind of a, of a, of a, a legend in the L.A. Blues, uh, blues scene. He had played with everybody that ever passed through. Uh, L.A. Uh, on the blues circuit, and uh, Johnny was an amazing guitarist, uh, and uh, and then you had uh, David w- Woodford, Woody Woodford, kind of a L.A. studio legend on the sax, and so mm-hmm. it was a four-piece band, and these guys would literally play. Uh, some of the guys, that, you know, you you would hear uh, Lee Dorsey on top of a Professor Longhair on top of a, and we uh, we lost Lloyd Price today. You guys would throw in, you know, you do this mm-hmm. mix and then do 
personality today, personality at the end of the set list. So the the range that you guys had was always amazing to me because it was I think people sat down thinking, oh, this is a New Orleans band. We're just going to hear uh, we're going to hear Avalon and we're going to hear some of these old uh, Dixie tunes. And then but you would just give them everything. So it, it's amazing that I it always blew me away that you guys had such a and so that's where that came from. Yeah, you know, because that was that was kind of um, that's a, in a, that's the entertainment part. I think of you know going, taking a page out of Thomas Jefferson book about the younger cats. You know, entertainment is the is is I would say is ninety percent of music because if you entertain with the music, people are going to want to hear it again. So I think you know we you know for I would say for three months we practiced every single day when we first started this band. And, you know, at first we started out, we were playing more funk stuff and people were like requesting Dixie. So we just kind of put this book together where I think the first set we would play uh, New Orleans jazz tunes and, and then kind of mix it up at the end. But we would play uh, 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 just a, um, a, a tune. You know, everybody wasn't really hip to New Orleans in terms of that. But our whole thing was to educate them, you know, and everybody had a role in the band where they would be featured. And I think, you know, looking back on that, that that was a, a, a great time for, for me to learn how to be a leader, you know, and it really should, it allowed me to really, uh, how do I expand my creative horizon along with the musical uh technology of of sound and just you know because what we played we there was i could you know even like i've listened to radio now says wow we really killed that so every tune that i hear now if i'm listening to a uh pandora or something we would those tunes we would play and i would hear we just had our own our own spin on how we did you know you look at a tune like uh, i was thinking about this because i was I've been thinking about all week knowing I'm going to have you on and and um, you guys used to kill Tipitina. You guys had this version of Tipitina and Johnny would start out with this real loose 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 guitar sound. You know, he bring in this guitar sound and then Richard would kick in with a bass and you guys would do this version of Tipitina and if you want to you listen to the song Tipitina, you you hear Professor Longhair do it, you hear uh you know, you hear Dr. John do it, you hear James Burker do it and it's it's sounds different every time and you guys threw your own spin on it and it was every bit as good I, that was always one that i always look forward to that was kind of the secret weapon because a lot of people out that aren't that don't know new orleans music aren't going to know that song you know that's not like a, a standard yeah. outside of the city of new orleans but amongst new orleans musicians that's a that's a that's kind of a standard you know and you guys would kill yeah. it you'd put your own kind of you guys would put your own New Orleans meets Los Angeles kind of a kind of a thing on it, but it was you guys would kill it every single time. So what I always loved about you guys, and this is uh, this reminds me of. Um, did you ever used to watch SCTV, Kenny? Did you ever watch? Yeah. That? Do you remember SCTV? They would do the Sammy Modlin show, and it was supposed to be like Dean Martin, and they would just all get yeah. on. They would all just get on and kiss each other's ass for like, yeah. oh no, you're the greatest. No, 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 you're the greatest. That's what I'm gonna. I'm gonna do that right now. It's my own version of the Sammy Modlin show. But no, what I always what I always loved about you is you you had such respect for, and this is the these are the days before. Hurricane Katrina, where kind of the the folk, the national yeah. attention was on New Orleans in the days before. You would always tell people, 
I'm going to do this. Alan, we're going to do an Alan Toussaint song now, or we're going to do a Professor Longhair now, or we're going mm. to do a Mac Robinac, uh, also known as Dr. John. You would give people these little tidbits of information about the music and kind of it was you could always tell that you had respect for where the music came from and respect for your hometown, which was always uh, I, I thought you always conveyed that to the audience very well. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. And I also realized, because I sat behind the drums, I did most of the talking. So the only thing I could do was project my voice and do a, 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 a Greek grill of storytelling, of just kind of let them know how this came about. Because a lot of people, that they go to New Orleans, they don't still know the difference between Creole and Cajun. Sure. There's a difference. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, so my thing was, we're a New Orleans-based band. We're not a New Orleans band. Yeah. We're a New Orleans based band that plays all genres of music from funk R and B to straight ahead jazz. We're a new but our base is New Orleans music. Yeah. So that's how that was really our hook with this whole, you know, whole vibe. And we still use that. But I think the one thing when we when we played, we wanted to project that, you know, we had our own sound. You know, and I think, you know, I I was Reflecting on the other day, I mean, it was a Saturday night, and Johnny's old school. Johnny just broke out with my girl, and I mean, this place was in. It was like, it was like at at Hollywood Bowl or something. And this place was such an, in a state where everybody in the place was singing. It was such a vibe, you know. And we had a lot of those nights, but it was just that spirit is what New Orleans is. Just the spirit to. Bring yourself and have a good time. Yeah. And that's why we had so many people came back because that's what we wanted to bring, you know. And the whole thing was when I first took that job, I made it, I made it a, 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 a priority. I'm not going to play everything the same. I'm not going to play just New Orleans music. It's going to be all kinds of music because we don't have the same people coming all the time. So that was kind of what attracted us and people kept coming back because you know, they okay. I I remember when the, you know, somebody was saying, yeah, I, just, I remember when I was here when I heard this music, and you know, you bring me back. And as a matter of fact, I still get a call from a gentleman who lost his wife around that time, and he was, you know, going to the park, and you know, had a relationship where he would, they would go every weekend, but he still calls me and asks me how I'm doing, and he wants, you know, he said, man, that was the most fun times I can remember when I was with my wife. So that makes me feel good. Yeah, me, music has that ability. Like we just talked about it with your mom and and my dad. Yeah. And music yeah. music makes connections that are that are deep on a lot of levels. Yeah, it's it's a very mystical, eternal kind of uh, uh, pre- presence music possesses. This is it's definitely a drug from the spiritual aspect. You know, when you hear something, it has substance. You know, and I think the one thing growing up in New Orleans, the, every kind of music we heard from. I remember I went to a recording session at CSUN Studios. I was, I think I was 10 years old at the time. And uh, Eddie Bowe, piano player, did, did a song called Hook and Sling. Yeah, Eddie Bowe, yeah. Yeah, so when he did this song, <clears throat> James Black was a great New Orleans drummer. He played flute, played piano and everything. I was sitting right by his hi-hat. So when I, there was a trumpet player who was my neighbor who bought, myself and his stepson to the session because we are the first band actually was when we played a house party and his his stepson played trumpet and i've had played a snare drum and my dad made me a hi-hat 
piece from an old music stand. We played the first song we played was Downtown. Downtown. So that was the first song we played, right? You know, but you know, he saw we had potential and he wanted to support us. So we went to the session and Eddie Bogue recorded Hook and Sling, and I was sitting by James Black Hi-Hat. So when he got up from the drums, I started to fool around with it. He, he shouted out the door, leave that alone. You know, so, oh, okay. So that was the end of that. There was no more fooling around there. So I was sitting by his hi-hat, and he was playing Hook and Sling. And uh, it's funny, you know, because all of, the, all of the older guys, they got this first tenor kind of voice. So Eddie, Eddie both sounds like uh, Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, man, that's that's it. That's it, Black. That's it, Black. Hey, play like that. That's it. Yeah, yeah. All the older men, I'm, I'm hoping and praying I don't get that kind of voice when I get older. But that, yeah, Black, that's it. Play it like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm a it again. I can't play it again. You know, so, you know, but, but that's, they know, but that's kind of the whole thing, man. It speaks for itself. Yeah, Eddie Bo. That's another one. If you if you're not familiar with a lot of uh, New Orleans, look up some Eddie Bo. That's some funky stuff right there. And a kind of you know another another kind of forgotten name that uh, that people don't know about unless you know you're really digging into that New Orleans that New Orleans sound. Uh, yeah. So Kenny, around this, so your your first gig is seventy uh, two. Is your first paying gig, right? So then yeah. you're gigging around Bourbon Street. What makes you do, now? Where do you do you come right out to L A. or are you all right, what, 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 what are your plans? Like, what makes you well, move out I west? Start, I didn't start gigging around. Uh, 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 when I got to Bourbon Street, I came back from college. I went to Texas Southern and I went to a local college, Dillard University. Then I started getting to the, wanted to get into the, the music scene. So around 78, I started doing steady work. So I auditioned for this show. It was a, a New Orleans musical, which actually I went to Broadway with. Uh, it's called One More Time. And they needed a, a drummer or a percussionist drummer for their national touring company that was going to start in Philadelphia in like two weeks. So I auditioned uh, Walter Payton, who's Nicholas Payton's father. Wow. Yeah, was the tuba player in the show. So Walter Payton and I used to, one night I saw Walter on the corner at the Toulouse and Bourbon at the place I was working at, at the time, 544. He says, hey, man, listen, this 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 gig that may be opening up, you want to audition for it uh, for the National Touring Company of One More Time. I said, yeah, sure. So uh, I think it was after I was the, uh, after the gig, my gig at the uh, 544, I think it was over at three o'clock. So I went to the, Toulouse Theater, they were there waiting, he and the piano player, and we auditioned a couple of songs for the One More Time show. And that Monday, my mom had to get her tonsils removed that weekend. And that Monday, I got a call offering me the gig to come to Philadelphia. So, and, and that's how I left And how old are you at this time? So you're in your early 20s, maybe? I was, uh, I was uh, 20. So you're 20 years old. You you so you show up in Philly. What's it like working with this touring company? What's it like to work in a Broadway touring company? Well, first of all, it was beautiful women, and I was green out of New Orleans, so <laughs> I had no. I was like, 
I was like Jethro, you know, from Beverly Hills. <laughs> you know, because I, you know, like it was like, what's the what's the line? Stevie Wonder's tune, skyscrapers and everything. So, <laughs> I, you know, the, the one thing that I, I I I did, you know, I had to learn the ropes. Let's put it like that. And you know, the National Touring Company really spoiled me because I never went out on these cheap tours. This National Touring Company, but they go to a city. You know, you might stay a month or stay four weeks, but you never like one-nighters. And you would travel. They take care of you. You, you travel by plane, never by bus, never by, you know, just it was first class all the way. So that really taught me, it brought my level of professionalism up even more. Yeah. So, yeah. So I started out, when I started out with that, that really kind of gave me a whole different insight of what it was like to be a, a professional musician outside of New Orleans. What cities did you hit on that tour? How long were you with that tour? I was with that tour for actually a year and a half. I think the first place that we played, we played Philadelphia because the, the show was such a great success. I think we played Philadelphia like three months. And I think from there, they had a lot of people wanting to invest in shows. So they brought it to Houston. Then we, after we went to Houston, Texas, then we went to San Francisco at the Kieran Theater in San Francisco. And then after that, we kind of, um, then we took a break. Then when we came back, we went to Washington, D.C., National Theater in Washington, D.C. Then when we went to Washington, D.C., then we came here to Los Angeles at the Aquarius Theater where Star Search was running. So we stayed here for three months, then back to San Francisco where the show closed. So, you know, you're 20 years old. And so let's say by like the second, let's say by the time you leave Houston, you get to San Francisco. You've been doing this show for, you know, three or four months already. I, mm. is, it, is it easier to do every night? And does that give you more free time during the day to kind of explore your surroundings or what are you doing on your off time? I was practicing. I had a, I bought a practice pad, you know, and the practice pad that I was using was portable and you could fold it up and put it in the tour truck and when I had it in my room. The one thing that I would one thing I learned from doing shows was I had to mentally prepare. You know, I you know, okay, I would say to myself if I'm walking to work or going to work, I said, okay, what cue did I miss tonight or you know, maybe I should play this a little, you know, slower, not slower, but just the how to interpret it. And, you know, just mentally I would prepare myself. That's when I got into the mental thing of how to play music. I would prepare myself mentally because, you know, if you do the same thing all the time, you got to figure out some ways to be creative with it, but you got to still keep it consistent. Sure. So that was my thing. You know, I would mentally prepare each night of how I was going to play the show. Uh did you, so when you came, when you were done with that, you're back to New Orleans now? And is, is that, is that what, what gave you the idea that maybe you wanted to leave New Orleans? Well, my wife and I got married in the, uh, uh, 1979, New Year's Eve, 1980. And she went back to New Orleans because she was on tour with me the whole time, you know. And she went back to New Orleans. When she went back to New Orleans... She stayed there for, I think, about, I think I finished the last second half of the tour. Uh, it lasted like, uh, uh, it lasted for about, uh, from from January to August. So I finished the last half of the tour and she stayed home and then, you know, just kind of packed up. 
And we decided we wanted to move to California because after the first leg of the tour, she was here with me and we really liked California. And we decided we wanted to move back. And she had an uncle that lived here too. And, uh, and, uh, Carson. Yeah. Okay. So we decided, so we, so we decided to move back. So that was kind of the, the plan. Did you meet your wife on the, were you, did you, did you know her from New Orleans or had you met on the tour? No, no, Debbie and I actually, we started dating in 1978 when I, uh, uh, started working on Bourbon Street. And, uh, you know, we started dating then, but we, we just had this connection, you know. So, you know, uh, at that time, you know, we decided we wanted to be together and we wanted to live together. But of course, our parents wasn't approving of that, you know, because, you know, we come from a Catholic family. Like, oh, are you really serious about this? But we were. So we stuck it out, you know. So, you know, as, as I mentioned to you before, I lost my wife on November 20th, uh, 2020. I'm sorry, November uh, uh, 2nd, 2020 last year. But, you know, we were married 39 years and, you know, we had a great life. And yeah, you know, but, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know if you wanted to bring it up on the show, and I, I, I told you, fine, I told you earlier. Fine. But I just so for the people that don't know, uh, a wonderful, wonderful woman, and uh, just beautiful smile, and uh, just funny. And she was funny because you know I would try to do these things where I would you know put kind of do an Eddie Haskell, and she would call me on it all the time. <laughs> she would call, oh, don't you look lovely today, Debbie? <laughs> She'd be like, don't you, don't. <laughs> Don't, <laughs> but just a, just a beautiful spirit and you two together just always, you, you know, you could feel that you could see that love that you guys had for one another. And, you know, yeah. she would sit and watch you play and, you know, you could tell she was just as enamored with you. She probably heard these songs a million times and, you know, to her, it was still, you know, she'd applaud for every song and, and, you know, she just, she always looked like she just loved seeing you play. So that, that, I always, you know, I always like seeing that. But you know what was so interesting about that? Because, you know, when we would ride home together, she would critique me and tell me what I need to do better. <laughs> <laughs> she always tell me, you know, maybe I'll need to put take that song out. It's too old now. You know? <laughs> so, you know, she would critique me, tell me what I need to do better. So when she saw her watching me, she was basically watching me and taking mental notes. Damn. Yeah, such a she has such an incredible mind. She can read a 360-page book in a, on a weekend and tell you what page or certain thing was by memory. That's how she was. You know, but she would. that's basically what she would do, you know. And she would, sometimes she would just kind of call things on what people was doing on the bandstand. You know? <laughs> she would buddy yeah. rich you in the car. She'd get you in the car. <laughs> <laughs> da 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 yeah. Throwing up clams over there. <laughs> throwing up clams. Hard for you guys. You throwing out clams? How dare you? <laughs> yeah. How dare you call yourself a professional? Oh, yeah. Man. Uh, so you come in, so you guys came out here. So now you, you move out here. It's the 80s. What What do you do to get yourself established in the, in the music scene out here? Well, when I first came out, you know, I, I had the great fortune of hanging out with Earl Palmer. Uh, Earl Palmer, legend. If you don't know Earl Palmer, um, Earl Palmer was part of the. Well, he's on every Fats Domino record for, that came out of the. I mean, every big Fats Domino record he's on there. He's on a bunch of uh, like Little Richard. I think he's on Tutti Fruity, right? I think he's the drummer he's on, on every single record specialty recorded. He's on every single Fats Domino, Little Richard, and he. As a matter of fact, he was on Hit the Road Jack with. Uh, 
Ray Charles, he did that. Yeah, and then he he then he comes out to this in the '60s and becomes a uh, part of the Wrecking Crew. So if you hear a Wrecking Crew yeah. song that isn't Hal Blaine, it's Earl Palmer. So yeah. if, if it's yeah. not Hal Blaine, on it's Earl Palmer. He's I mean hundreds of records to this guy's name. Uh, how did well, you? I thought I Thousand, I counted. You know, I have his book. He, uh, when we gave, he gave me a, his book, Backbeat. So the, you know, but I think it's more than a thousand records he, he recorded. Very influential rock drummer. Uh, took kind of kind of took the New Orleans Dixie stuff and kind of translated it for, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of early rock tunes. So how did you mm-hmm. happen to cross paths with Earl Palmer? Well, I was working at this place, like I was sharing the five forty four. Mm-hmm. And that was a five-piece band. So I think that year I stopped drinking, I stopped smoking dope, and 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 I, I just said wanted to see what it was like not to get high. So it worked out pretty good because I still don't get high to the day or do any drugs. I stopped dr- doing all that in 1982. So any any event, uh, I'm coming down from the stage, and the man at the at the bar has got a trench coat on, an expensive looking trench coat. He says to me, hey man, I really like what you're doing up there. And I just kind of shut him. I said, yeah, thank you. And then he says, after I'm walking, he says, my name is Earl Palmer. I'm like, oh! (laughs) I'm sorry, let me bow down right here. So, uh, he started talking to me. You know, he was holding a conversation. You know, he was telling me he was in town with Peggy Lee. That's another funny story. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he was in town with Peggy Lee and he said he was playing at the Fairmont hotel, which was a very prestigious hotel. And, uh, he says, Hey man, gave me his number. He said, if you're ever in California, look me up. Wow. And so when I, so when I came, that's what happened. And what, so he, does he, he takes you under his wing and is just, I mean, what's it like? You're like, what does he do? Well, he takes me the first, the first time we met up, uh, he was doing a session at United studios and uh, they were doing a a TV show Happy Days. Oh, okay. And he was playing drums on the session. Red Calendar was on bass. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, he was just kind of, they were doing cues and, you know, and you did did rehearse a cue once and and it's just taken, you know. So uh, he... Was, I was in a booth with him watching the cues, and he was showing me different things, how you know to look at cues. And, of course, he was talking about the click track, which I wasn't familiar with at all. And so <laughs> it was one moment I got behind the drums, and I was looking at the music, and I started playing it. And he was in a booth. He was talking. He was joking around. He said, hey, hey, oh, oh. He said, get off those drums. He said, if you're on those drums, you do that. They're going to fire me. So... He, you know, he taught me a lot about the business of music, you know. Yeah. He was always, uh, the business of music was, was one thing he taught me about, publishing, how to make sure, you know, if you're doing any TV shows that you, you make sure that, you know, you are signed with all the proper agencies to, to get your money. Because you can, you can be doing TV shows for years. I still get royalty checks from things that I've done. Um, you know, on TV, because, you know, he showed me how to make sure that it, that I can always have that happen. But, you know, he really taught me a lot in, in going around with him, you know, and please don't ever hang out with him. He, you know, I would leave my house at six in the evening. I wouldn't get home until six in the morning. Then he would want to sit in the car and talk. So, <laughs> you know, like, 
was like, and he would say, hey, man, you're coming out to, to, tomorrow night or oh, next night? He said, no, Earl, I got something to do. I didn't have anything to do. I just couldn't hang no more. <laughs> and how, how, how old was he at the time? How old was he at this time? Earl was in, it was like, like late 60s going into 70s. And still going strong. Listen, man, I, I told him, I said, oh, no, Earl, I got to do something with Debbie tonight. Any kind of, I couldn't hang with him anymore. <laughs> I had to take him. It was just too much. And, you know, the places that were open at the time, Dante's, you know, Dante's, you know, they had their after hours where, you know, every, the only certain people come in there and you're drinking and, you know, you're hanging out. And, you know, it's six in the morning, man, the, the sprinklers are coming on. He's still talking to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, but that was, you know, but that was my uh, hanging out with him. Then started getting calls from a piano player, so a guy named Eddie Beal who was a vocal teacher for Sarah Vaughn. He had oh. a trio. And I started doing some work with him. And was there a was there a big when did you break out kind of on your own? When did you when were you able to kind of say, well, okay, I can establish myself now? Uh, I don't know. know, it just kind of gravitated toward that. People were calling me for New Orleans gigs. And, you know, um, you know, calling me for like brass band jobs or whatever. And then Debbie says, you know, since people are calling, why don't you just want to just form a company? I said, hey, that's a great idea. So we formed Care Care Music in 1994. And you've been doing it ever since. Ever since, yeah. And, and now you, you're you're at a point where you do a lot of uh, you do a lot of uh, Mardi Gras events. A lot of uh, anytime they need a New Orleans kind of uh, flavor, you'll do. You have a brass band you you front as well. Yeah, we have a brass band at front, you know, it, um, you know, uh, do, do a, do a two-piece to a five-piece to a, you know, seven-piece, you know. So right now I'm, I'm working on some uh, 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 music for uh, African book for children. Wow. Yeah. Is there anything out there right now that, that grabs you, or is it basically just stuff you already, you've already studied and you, you, you've known? I don't know. I, th- I think it's, it's such an evolution of the times we live in. You know, one thing that happens in, in, in any kind of art was, was the famous Kyle uh, Gieber and the prophet. He says, actors, poets, musicians are modern day prophets administering to the souls of men. So I think you have to always treat music with the times. There are a lot of great projects that I, I, I envision you know, my thing now is I'm really focused on trying to um, create a, a, a percussive kind of sound, you know, you know, with, in terms of writing and uh, just really having uh, percussion be like the element of, of melody. Percussion is the element of uh, uh, storytelling, so to speak, you know, because they're all in, you know, in the grills and the African tribe and tradition, all of that stuff, you go back to hear it. It was mostly, um, you know, drums, you know, the, 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 you know, New Orleans histories, you know, the reason, the only reason why they didn't take the drums out of New Orleans, because Congo Square and from six to seven in the evening was where they, the slaves were entertained for the slave owners. So they kept that mu- music because the slave owners needed to be entertained. It had nothing to do with the, with the, with the, uh, the, the people, the, the, the Africans. The Africans was the entertainer, but they let them keep the drum. For people that don't know, Congo Square was the part of New Orleans where the slaves were were auctioned off. 
and it was like a yeah. big it was like a big bazaar people would come and there would it was almost mm-hmm. like a, it was almost like a i mean not for the slaves but for everybody else it was almost like a carnival atmosphere yeah. and yeah. so and, but a lot of that is still commemorated in New Orleans today is that is that is that right it's commemorated but you know one thing also to the missing link cuba is is not that far up the coast from new orleans yeah you know you, it's not so the, the the Cuban connection, you know, all the Latin rhythms, all the Cuban rhythms, you know, all that stuff is c- connected New Orleans. You know, if you really hear New Orleans music, you can really hear that influence in there. You know, because a lot of that is straight out of that area. You know, Miami wasn't like Miami is now, but you know, because it came directly from 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 Cuba to New Orleans, and somehow. You know, in the African tradition, you know, slaves come to New Orleans, but how they bought all of those genres of music. Yeah, the, you also get a big influence from the islands, from the from the islands yes. of the Caribbean. New Orleans yes. being, being a port city, you know, people yes. are passing through from all over the rest of the... You know, it's funny, I think when I first heard somebody with a real New Orleans accent, and I, mm-hmm. I worked with them, you know, for a while... I thought at first they were from New York. I thought it was like a New York, like a Brooklyn accent. And then it was like, well, it's a port city, of course, just like New York. So you get all these different inflections coming in and it's its own thing. It's its own thing. But people from New Orleans will call you, will use the the way they they use, when they MF you, it's different than New York. So in it's a little it kind of lazes off at the end, you know, of, of a <laughs> with somebody. Well, you know, if you, if you if you really hear a, a Bernie Mac stand up when he talks about the MF, you know, I start the, that MF out, you know, <laughs> kind of, that kind of story. You know, it's a story kind of MF. It's not a story. It's not a cuss. It's like and then the MF was in. Yes, tell that MF. You know, that kind of. You know, it's a story going to the MF. It's not a story of, of, of it's not a cuss. You know, the story behind, after you do the MF, you got to put the story behind. <laughs> yeah, there's even, a, New Orleans has, I mean, New Orleans is kind of, I've said this about, it's its own thing. It's its, its own, you know, people talk about Southern cuisine, but that's not necessarily New Orleans cuisine. No, no. New Orleans has its own language. New Orleans has its own food. It has its own yeah. music, and it's kind yeah. of separate from the rest of the country. And so, when you when you when you get something that's from authentic from New Orleans that's authentic or New Orleans, I said New Orleans, but when you get something from New Orleans that's authentic, you know it's from New Orleans. You can tell, and uh, but that's the way your band was. You could tell, like you said, you were New Orleans influenced, or you you weren't really a New Orleans band, but you were a New Orleans influenced band. But you could tell that somebody in that band was from New Orleans because it had that air of authenticity to it. Well, I think the one mainstay in, in the New Orleans band is always the drums. You know, if you, there's, a, there's a certain kind of style of beat that you can play, and that identifies New Orleans music. Even um, the, what's the most famous, uh, 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 Jamal uh, Poncietta. Vernel Fournier is from New Orleans. He, as a matter of fact, he's the cousin of the guy who wrote the show I was in. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So you know, uh, you know that that kind of uh, offbeat kind of, uh, mm-hmm. and that goes back. I mean, you you listen to yeah. stuff. I mean, you go back way back to drummers that play with Louis Armstrong. 
like yeah. Zuddy Singleton and, and Baby Dodge and those guys, they're yeah. playing that beat in the 20s. It's, uh, yeah. It goes all the way back. As early as you can find recorded music, you know, so just a few years past the turn of the 20th century, New Orleans players are already playing like that. And but and and Johnny and Baby and Johnny does they were brothers but they're both from New Orleans. Yeah, that's and they that that beat it doesn't change. And then even if you bring it up to modern times, you know that that New Orleans beat is still there. Um, so Kenny, you so you're out here. You've been out here a while, but you've also you you part of the reason I want to have you on the show is you're a raconteur. And uh, you said, I have some good stories I want to share. And I know there's no way to, like, jam them in organically. So I just want you to tell me you had a few stories you want to share with the audience. And a couple of these I know. So, yeah. you know. Well, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll share, you know, I'll share a, a brief story about Prince if we have the time. Oh, you have and plenty I, of time. There's no rush. Okay. okay so, so I'll share my Prince story. <laughs> so this is 1977. I'm working at the place called Mesa, not the, uh, uh, 544. This was a great sax player. I still have him contact. His name is Gary Brown. He was a great sax player. So it was a five-piece band. And this club is located on the corner of Toulouse and Bourbon. And it has like this, they had like, to, they have a bouncer at the door and from the side, but they have like this little window that had bars on it and you can kind of peep through it and see the, like the whole band. Okay. So I think one night we were playing, it was, we were cooking, man, you know, and <laughs> I, see this little, I see this little head keeps jumping up and down, it's jumping up and down. Then finally he kind of puts his head against the window. And then about in five minutes, it's, that's Prince walking through the door with his band. And so he's walk, he's walking through the door with his band, and they make a beeline to the corner to sit in the corner where his back was to the wall. So after he gets off stage, he has this trench coat on, right? He has his trench coat on, is all the way butt to the top, and he and we go over and Grim says, "Hey, man." Prince, we, you know, we like your music. And he was very shy, really always like just take. And then, so he asked the, 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 uh, the, the guitar player, Prince wants to know, can he sit in? We're like, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, he said, no, but he wants to sit in with his own band. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess he's going to sit in with his own band. So, uh, they get up there and they start adjusting all the equipment, man, and start, you know, the drums and everything. And they get on stage, and he gets up on stage. He didn't have a guitar because we only had one guitar. So when he gets up on stage, he pulls off his trench coat. He's got this leopard G-string on, <laughs> and he's got purple leotards on, these leopard boots. And when he turns around, this G-string is up his butt with the leotards on. <laughs> right? So... He's, he plays his whole concert. He did the whole set, one hour set. After he does his set, puts his coat on, gets off stage, and walks out the door. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, what the hell just happened here? <laughs> and the, the instrument sounded so good on stage, and everybody was like, don't touch nothing. Leave it like it is. Don't touch it. Leave it. Leave it alone. You know, it was, it was a, like, 
Prince just played it. Don't touch it. Leave it. You know, everybody's tone was different. Everything was different about it. You know? But that was the Prince night, right? That was a Prince night. Now was Prince, so, was Prince in New Orleans a lot? Was he? Was that? Was he? No, that was one that did the. That was the first uh, record, Soft and Wet. Okay, all right. So he was on tour, but he was an opening band. Okay, but yeah, you, he was opening. You guys already knew him by that time, though. Oh yeah, we knew his music because the music was like, "Who was that?" You know, it was like, "Wow!" You know, it was smoking. So the, my the other. Story I was saying about King Floyd, you know. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So King Floyd, you know, he had Groove Me, he had all these hits back in 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 the early '60s, you know. But he was a hot iron, so he came out here to California. And he wanted to hire a New Orleans band, so I was working in a certain band. I won't mention the name, and uh, we rehearsed at this guy's house. This mom fixed some red beans and some fried chicken, you know, because of course New Orleans guy is coming. So we get into rehearsals and, you know, he wanted to play, start off with a tune, you know, and uh, once we started playing a tune, he, the guy was not playing it right. He said, hey, man, another New Orleans guy has got that voice. Hey, man, listen, don't play that like that, man. That's going to F me up. Don't play that like that. <laughs> play an invoision. Play an invoision, man. Play some invoisions. And now you don't know what invoisions means, right? You know? <laughs> so... so after after we get after after a while, she said, "Let's take a break, man. Let's just take a break." So we take a break. We go eat some red beans, and so he calls the guy. Say, "Hey, man, listen, listen. Let me talk to you." So I'm in a room with the guys, right? He says, "Listen, man. He's smacking on chicken, right? <laughs> listen, man. I don't think this is gonna work out. But anyway, thank your mama for that chicken." <laughs> so, so, so that was the end of that. We were supposed to. We're supposed to play in the House of Blues, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he gets hooked up with Uma, uh, Uma Thurman, right? And, he, and you know, she want, now check this out. She wanted him to come to her house to watch her get his, her legs waxed. What? She wanted him to come to her house because he was, it was a weird thing to watch her get her legs waxed. And somehow they became friends. He got a song in her movie. <laughs> <laughs> that's the truth. I'm not making it up. I'm not making it up. I'm not making it up. I think my yeah. new I think my new goodbye when I'm gonna blow somebody off or down, I'm gonna say, look, this isn't gonna work out, but thank yeah. you, mom, for that chicken. Yeah, and he was smacking the whole time. He had a chicken leg in his hands, as a matter of fact. You know? He said, Hey man, you know what? I don't think it's gonna work out. And then Max the more said, but anyway, thank your mom for that chicken. <laughs> yeah. 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 Man. That's that's you know, it's you know, we musicians, man, we 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 be in areas or places, you know, there's such a oh, I gotta tell you this this Thomas Jefferson story. Uh, this one here, you got this one, I gotta share this with you. You no, you got Thomas it. Jefferson. The, the Thomas floor is Jefferson. yours. Thomas Jefferson, uh Always led bands, always led bands. You know, he always had, he was always hard on, hard on drummers, you know. So anyway, uh, there was a guy named Frank Oshley. Frank died years ago. Frank Oshley was in his band. He would always talk back to Tom. He was never afraid of Tom. Tom would kind of put the fear in people. 
And so Frank Ashley would talk back to him. So I guess it was something Frank didn't do. So he fired him, fired him like on a Wednesday or something. So, you know, you work five days a week, you get your pay at the end of the week, 274 a week. So I don't know what why 274, but that's what it was. That's what it was. So, yeah. So Frank shows up at the at the the Friday in the at the uh Mason Bourbon courtyard. The, by the way, this guy named Al St. Germain, he loved, he loved uh, 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 Thomas Jefferson. He loved him because he was such a great attendant. But, you know, this day, Tom, the guys come, Franks comes up to Tom and says, hey, Tom, uh, where's my money, man? I need to get paid. And Tom says, man, I ain't paying you nothing. You got fired. <laughs> oh, but Tom, you still owe him money, right? He says, yeah, but man, that's what he was saying. Tom, you still owe me money. No, man, I fired you because when I fired you, you don't get paid. I said, okay. All right. And the guy said, Tom, you're going to pay me my money, man. He says, no, man, I ain't paying you. So Frank offs and cocks him right in the mouth, punches him right in the mouth. And and Tom's holding his mouth saying, So so he takes his handkerchief out of his pocket. He's got some blood on it, right? So... You know, the trumpet players in them days used to carry these little small horn cases because some of them looked like cornets, but it was small trumpet. So he opens the trumpet up, case up, goes in there and takes out his gun. So his gun, his gun, you know, looked like in those Bogart movies. That's the kind of gun he had. A little revolver. Yeah. Like a little revolver. Yeah. No, like the long stem. Oh, oh okay. Like a, like a, like a, like a, like a Magnum, like Dirty Harry. No, no. A regular, like a, a, a coat, like a cowboy coat. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. So he's holding his, his mouth with his handkerchief. He's got the gun up in the air, right? And this place is packed. So he's running Frank Ashley around the place with the gun up in the air. He's not shooting it, by the way. <laughs> and all these people at the place drinking. It looked like a, a, a scene from the, from the Marx Brothers movie. <laughs> <laughs> So he's running around in circles. He's running around the thing like three or four times with the gun in there. And his he's got this huge uh, overcoat on and it's just flying through the place. And Frank is dodging through tables. It's like a Chico Hawks movie, man. It was really, you know, but we're all watching this and Tom's like, and the whole time he's holding the, 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 the handkerchief over his mouth and he's holding the gun up in the air. <laughs> Did he catch Broad him? Daylight. Did he catch him? No, he didn't catch him, but I think the, somebody stopped him. And so, uh, you know, that was the last straw. That was the last time he played at the Mason Bird. So did you ever play with Thomas Jefferson, or were you just hanging out there? No, actually, I did one gig with him. I was subbing for a guy, uh, uh, the late, great Stanley Stevens. Stanley calls me up. Stanley would wear, like, an apple hat on the gig because, you know, Tom wanted you to play a certain way. He wanted a strong backbeat and don't play nothing else. Don't don't make don't no solos, no fills. Just play a backbeat. So Stanley would just, you know, keep his head down. You know, I guess Stanley stayed with him the longest. So one day Stanley gets I got, got pissed at him. He decided he wasn't going in. So he calls me and said, Hey, listen, man, I want you to go and sub it for me for Tom. I said, you know, Tom don't know me. He said, Yeah, but tell him I sent you. I said, okay. So I go over there. He's at a new place now called the Back Door, the famous door. Yes, the famous door. So I go up there, and I have my cymbal bag and everything. I get to the bandstand. Tom said, who are you? I said, Stanley sent me 
Stanley, Stanley sent me to, to, to sup for him today. He wasn't feeling well. This ain't Stanley's band, man. Stanley ain't <laughs> nobody here for me. I pick who I want. This is my band for. I pick the musicians I want. You know. So he still. Then he says, "You could. You do you know this music?" I said, "Yeah, Tom. I know the music." I said, "Man, if you know, you can't be playing this music if you don't know it. You can't play this music if you don't know it." I said, "Okay." So I got off the bandstand. So then he starts to talking to some people at the bar. Stanley go send somebody here for me. Stanley can't. This is my band. He can't send people for me. So then he sees me in the doorway, right? And I'm just, I'm just like, just standing. So it's okay. I'm gonna embarrass this cat right now. Come on up here and play some music. Come on, come on, sit in. We play, play a song right now. So I play the whole song down, right? And I play every four bar drum tag and play all this stuff down. After the end of the song, he looks back at me, says. Yeah, man, that's that's all that's all right. But you didn't play them four ball tags right. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't yeah. gonna give you the yeah. whole thing. He wasn't gonna, no, give, wasn't gonna give me nothing. <laughs> and then after I get off stage, you know, he had this little like a giggly laugh, and you know, he's he's shaking his head. He's going, man, these young cats is something else. Yeah, these young cats is coming up. What they learning this music? <laughs> these cats is something else, man. So, uh... You know, I love these Thomas Jefferson stories. The, yeah, the hot he plate. Was, he was, yeah, he was a one of a kind. He really was one of a kind. How old was he around this time, and and what happened? He, I mean, I passed away by now, obviously, but yeah, I think you know he was. He lived in a. He rented a room, like in the, uh, in the French Quarter. He had a he had a one room, like like in the old movies. He was like one of them kind of cats. Rented a room. And he basically, you know, rented a room, like in the movie Ray. That's what it describes. He's like that. And so, but he, when he stepped out of his house, he stepped out of his house. It looked like and he was in a band box. Everything was sharp and crisp. He was clean, you know. But he was quite a character. He really was. And, you know, he he was a great singer, too. But the one song, like I said, that really, really caught my attention and he and he just brought the house down come home bill bailey bill bailey so I, that's i always that's why i played that song because i always remember he had such a uh uh a spirit about that tune when he sang it that, that was his signature tune i don't know if it's a signature i think his signature was playing the trumpet upside down <laughs> so kenny yeah. when, when you were coming up who were who were some of the uh the drummers that you were interested in Wow. You know, in New Orleans, every Saturday, we would do wedding hunts. So wedding hunts, basically, you find out what band is playing there. Because you can go and see the band for free. You don't have to pay no money. And, you know, people had good food then, so you can crash the wedding, you know. So basically, what I would do was I would find out where bands were playing, and I'd go uh, find a place to sit behind the drummer. So all the drummers that would play, they would have um, they had a style, they had a sound, you know? And I didn't really have like a, a choice, you know, but I guess when I was in high school, I had a, I have a still good friend of mine. We started listening to like Mahavishnu, 
Billy Cobham, mm-hmm. and started listening to stuff that was really off the charts. As a matter of fact, when I would play this stuff in dance bands, guys would get so pissed at me because I was playing like five, four signatures against four, four. Yeah. And they would tell, they was right at the group band director. Man, that cat's playing out wrong rhythm. Don't let him play that, you know. <laughs> but doing, doing, my head was Yeah, you my head was you were doing like uh like Dave Brubeck. Like you were like that kind of just weird time signatures kind yeah, of Yeah, really come up him, you know, just really, you know, uh, you know, uh, I, uh fusion. Fusion. I was playing fusion. But I, you know, I think I think there was a lot of people that I I I heard, you know, I think my my friend and I, Leroy Jones, who played with Harry Connick, we started to we had a band was called New Orleans Finest, and we started when we got old, we started playing Bourbon Street. But one thing we started doing was we we were like Max Roach, Clifford Brown fanatics, so we started listening to all of this stuff. And I, we started kind of interpreting that stuff and then bringing it to gigs, but we would get fired because the guy playing Dixieland. You know? <laughs> so, but, you know, I started grabbing. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to, no, go ahead. Keep going. So we were grabbing, so, but we started gravitating toward things. We, we already knew what was in the walls. Mm-hmm. We wasn't trying to, we knew how to do that. We were really thinking about how can we grow outside of that. Sure. You know, so, so I listened to other people. You know what? It's what's amazing about that is that we we talked a little bit about some of like Louis Armstrong's drummers and stuff like that. And um, you grew up in a time when the when the drum sound had already kind of evolved, right? Mm-hmm. But you had mm-hmm. guys in the old days they couldn't they couldn't break out of playing that style. They couldn't play what our parents would have called the progressive jazz because yeah, yeah. because the biggest change what what people don't you know people that aren't into jazz the, the biggest change when jazz became more quote-unquote modern was uh, one big change was the drum, the rhythm. It went from the snare and the bass to the cymbals and the, mm-hmm. you're using the snares to do accents and you're, you're doing, you know, you're dropping what bombs they called with the, with the bass, yeah, but, yeah. but the rhythm yeah. now is on the cymbals. And a lot mm-hmm. of those old school New Orleans drummers, it was more military. They, they was like marching band style. So you played everything on the snare. Yeah. The rhythm came yeah. primarily from the snare. And so, yeah, yeah. and so when you're saying things like, uh, like, like, uh, uh, Tom Jefferson wanted you to play with a strong backbeat, that meant he mm-hmm. didn't want you to do it. He wanted you to play like the old Dixieland style. Well, that's the, that is the style. Yeah. That is the style. It was, there was no room for creativity because the, the trumpet had the melody. The star of the show was basically a clarinet player. Yeah. You know, you know, you know, so I think the one thing that, we didn't want to do as coming up, like, you know, like the younger generation. We didn't want to imitate that. We wanted to kind of bring something new to it. And I think the one thing now, even like I reflect on, you know, the, the, the younger, even like the, the, uh, uh, the, you know, whole New Orleans rap vibe, you know. Oh, yeah. You know, those guys, they got a whole nother vibe going with the, with the way the beat is, you know, back that thing up, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah, all yeah. That, you know, they got a whole nother thing going with that, you know. Well, you have, so, you have brass bands now that are playing a little bit more of a, uh, they're, they're more influenced by stuff outside of New Orleans. Uh, you know, they're doing hip hop influenced brass band stuff. Now you have like, what's, I can't think of their name. The, um, the rebirth 
Rebirth brass bands, bands like well, that. Well, you know, my friend who who actually was uh, Gregory Davis and uh, uh, the Barry Sax players started Dirty Dozen brass band. But when they would do uh, street parades, they were playing all Charlie Parker tunes. Yeah, and that's that's unusual because that's yeah. that's a whole different you know. That, that's a whole different ball of wax trying to do that with a with a brass band, with a street band. And they, yeah, yeah, and they, 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 that's how they got their name, you know. But they did. They wanted to do not just a traditional brass band. They wanted to do something that had some edge to it. So now, when you're trying to recruit musicians, Kenny, are you are you finding people that are kind of New Orleans uh, transplants like you were, or are you finding? That it's easier to find guys now that know the New Orleans style and can play it. I think it's it's a it's a matter of sound. It's a sound thing now, you know, because there's there's certain you know like my we have a engagement on set with my brass band, but there's certain things that I'm not going to ask for because they don't understand that. So I have to bring that from the roots of where I come from. And I can adjust because I know how to adjust. Yeah. But when I look, I basically look for people you know who who want who have some kind of uh, reference to New Orleans. Yeah, you know, even you know when I put the, the when at the last stage and had changed keyboard players and sounds New Orleans, you know, we we did Johnny and I did awful lot of work with with, with Marty because we really wanted him to get it. And he wanted to get it. So now you know he understands it because. The one thing we shared is, and to this whole secret, New Orleans music is not a, 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 a vertical meter. It's horizontal, side to side. So if you hear New Orleans music, it's kind of like going side to side, not up and down. You know, people are trying to hear it like that, but it's not like it's like, <laughs> you know, there's a difference. You know, it's supposed to end one, end two, end three, end four. You know, so it's a difference. Yeah, you know, the biggest, for me, when I can tell right away, for me, what gives it away, aside from, like, that beat, is if you hear a New Orleans piano player, you hear somebody mm -hmm. like a James Booker or yeah. Professor Longhair or e even yeah. Harry Connick, you know this guy's yeah. from New Orleans because of the way he's playing the rhythm. The way his left hand is working tells you yeah. he's from New Orleans. And you're right, it's that horizontal, it's almost like that stride. It's that, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it, it, it's like somehow yeah. embedded into the fabric of the music. The, the the that the city that rhythm is is new. That New Orleans rhythm is embedded in that in that piano yeah. playing. It's the it's the it's the dance. Even you know the connection with Harry because Harry took lessons from James Booker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's there's a great documentary. If you don't know who James Booker is, check him out. He was in New Orleans. He was a character. You want to talk about a character? Oh. Uh, you got to read. You have to read uh, 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 Doctor John's book, "Hoodoo Over the Yellow Moon," and you know they were on tour together. I, you know, we don't want to talk about. It was. It's. It's. Uh, James Booker was a, a serious character. Let's just put it like that. Yeah. If you. If you. It's, I think the, the the documentary on him is called "Adventures of the Bayou Maharaja." Um, I think mm -hmm. it's on Amazon. Check it out. There are some mm -hmm. great stories. He was a. He was a crazy. He was a crazy guy, but uh, they, I mean, if you ever, if you never heard him play, seek him out because it's amazing what he can do with just a piano, just by himself, yeah. not even a yeah. band. Well, you know, in, in the Toulouse Theater where I auditioned for the show, I played it a couple of times and he was playing in the lobby. 
James Booker was. So what happened one night was, you know, people gather around a piano, but he always wanted to keep it with only a candle on the piano. <laughs> no lights, nothing. Yeah. So one night he's playing, you know, he had one eye, uh, you know, because he had gotten to a fight and somebody uh, stabbed him in the eye with a with beer bottle. That's how he had one eye. So when he's playing, kept seeing this guy at the corner. The guy was just staring at him, watching him play piano. So he gets up, he slams the piano, and he runs this guy, chases this guy around the room, like like Thomas did. You know, and, but you know, just that kind of strange creature, you know, genius kind of guy. Yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't really get close to him. Yeah, if you hear him play something like, um, he does a version of Chopin's Minute Waltz, and it's amazing. Yeah. There's so many great New Orleans musicians. Yeah. Kenny, if you were going to give somebody give somebody a crash course, who would you recommend they listen to if they want to get a feel for New Orleans music? Well, I think, you know, you can start with Fats Domino because, you know, that's very simple. Yeah. You know, the, the lyrics have, the beat is good, you know, and, uh, you know, you got all of the great New Orleans session players on there. Sure. And, and you know... If you want to go in the funk arena, you got to listen to the meters. The meters, yeah. You can't you can't get away from not listening to the meters. And if you want to go to the R and B era, you can start with Laurie Price. You can start with props of Laurie Price, R.I.P. You know, you can start with people who are really playing New Orleans music at the most simplest level. You know, and you know, uh, the Richard, you know. Really rock and roll, but if you really start to hear that rhythm section, Earl Palmer and all those guys rocking it out, and the and the thing I would ask Earl, I says, "How did you guys get that sound?" He said they had one huge RCA mic in the middle of the room. They separated the rhythm section, put them in the one corner, and they put the put the, the singer in the middle where he would sing, and everybody separated, played off that one mic. So, well, how did you get your drum sound to be so incredible? He said, "I put a wallet on my snare drum." Wow. That was it? Yeah, that was it. So he took his wallet out, put it on the snare drum. Rest is history. Yeah, and that, that that blew me away when he told me that. But there was no, you know, stereo recording, but the, the, the but you can really feel the energy is rocking, though. You know, Lee Allen playing all those sax solos. And yeah, but, you know, the music was simple, but it, it was effective. So I think that's where I would start. What's amazing about, you brought up the recording, what's amazing, I always think about this with early rock and roll because early rock wasn't, it wasn't a proven moneymaker yet, right? It was still, but at the same time you have, uh, you know, you have, you know, Capitol Records recording Sinatra at this time and it's step, it's separated in their strings and it's almost like this three-dimensional stereo sound, right? That's going on mm -hmm. and like the, a few years later. But you listen to some of those early rock records, and they just sound like, like you said, they sound with one room, an overhead mic, but somehow mm -hmm. that power still comes through. Though you know, you you listen to something like, uh, you listen to listen to like uh, "I'm Walking" by by Fats Domino, right? And yeah. you listen to that saxophone solo, and there's so much mm -hmm. energy and so much, and it's a mono recording, and you know, if there's they've got like a little bit of an echo effect going on with the clapping, and but that beat is so strong from the drums. And, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, Earl Palmer. You know, but the thing—the thing is, they didn't have a pretense of 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 making music. They just made the music. So whatever happened, happened. You know, Matasmo 
Cosmo was the was the, the genius behind Cosmo Studios. And I had the honor, like I said, to be in there when I was 10 years old to watch them record uh, Hook and Sling. And, you know, but even that recession, it wasn't no, at that time, they kind of got a little more uh, sophisticated. You know, they had drum booth with separated drums. But it was just um, the sound that they created, you know, because those guys, you know, they got a tape of the music and they put their own whatever to it. They never read any music. Nobody did an arrangement. You just come and play it. Yeah. Uh, that's Cosmo Matassi you're talking about. If, if you ever, you yeah. can, you can Google him. Uh, very famous uh, New Orleans, New Orleans record producer produced everybody to come out of New Orleans. Pretty much. Uh, yeah. Uh, every famous New Orleans musician went through uh, Cosmo studios. So check yes. that out. If you want to, if you want a, a nice little um, thumbnail sketch of what New Orleans music was like in the fifties and sixties, even the seventies, uh, check mm. out, look any, look for anything produced by, by Cosmo Matassi. Kenny, this is Kenny. You're a wealth of knowledge and stories, and uh, well, I appreciate you know you allow me to share them. You know, I mean, I love you. You've always, you know, one thing I've always admired about you. You've always respected the music. You've always honored the music. Now that I'm thinking about it, you know, my dad when he was uh, when he was around, um, he really was the one that taught me. You know, if we're listening to Count Basie record, he'd be like, now listen to the rhythm section. Now, listen, you hear the bass, you hear the guitar. He really taught me how to listen for. Yeah. So yeah. When, when, when I first heard your band, I was blown away because I was like, this is a four-piece band, but these guys sound like, this is a big sound coming out of this, these four guys right here, you know? Right. And you would hear, you know, you would hear, you, you guys would do these songs, and, and then for me, listening to the, the rhythm, the drums, so it's like, okay, he's not, he's playing a New Orleans song here. He's playing a jazz song, but now he's doing Breezin' by George Benson. And first right. of all, Johnny's a blues guitarist and he's killing it. Right? Yes, he is. And then yes. you've got the you got the wind chimes, you got the little chimes going on in the background. Yeah. And you're doing right. like a you're doing like a nice little you know, you're doing a whole different beat for that. That's a different thing. And then, like you said, two seconds later you guys are jumping into my girl. And then from there you're going to uh, you know, you're doing the rockin' pneumonia and the boogie woogie flu. And, mm-hmm. and so for me to watch this, you know, it's like, it's almost like you're just changing hats. You're doing all these different things. You know, you're watching, it's like you, you take your, your car to the service station. Next thing you know, the guy's washing your windows, but then next thing you know, he's underneath the car and he's doing your brakes. And you, you like, how is this guy doing all of this stuff? And that's yeah. the way I felt about that band. So it mm-hmm. was, it was a, if you ever get a chance now, who's in the band now? Who's your lineup now? Kenny, do you want to, well, you, you want to give him a little I'm, shout out? Yeah, you know, I'm every you know when we haven't like I said we haven't done anything with that band in some time, but I usually try to use uh, Keith Fitman on tenor sax and you know uh, Marty still when he's available to use him and Mikhail Majid if he's not available, um, uh, Doug McCaskill on guitar because as a matter of fact Debbie when Johnny had had transitioned. Debbie's, and I was like, who can I get to play guitar? Like, you know, because I wasn't going to find a Johnny Turner, so I, I put that out. So so my wife says, why don't you call Doug? I said, really? She said, yeah, if anybody can do, play, play some, some Leo guitars, Doug. Yeah. Okay. Well, Kenny, I'm going to wrap it up just because it's almost, yes. it's getting late here. It's almost bedtime. 
for Bob wow. for Bob. Well, not for me, but you know, I just I just that's whatever. a lot a lot of information there. Well, you know, I I keep a, I keep a pretty active schedule. You know, <laughs> <laughs> shirts. Should the guys shirts. get shirts? That's just the way it is. Come on with hey, you come on the stage. You can't with t-shirt. Where's hey? Where's your where's shirt? Where's your shirt? You got a t-shirt. Where's your shirt? You're on. I want shirts. You're on. Joe, you're on notice. You're on notice. There it is. You're on fucking notice. Uh, and then I love when he says. What does he say? He says, don't make me the maniac. It's too late, Paul. Don't make me the maniac. Don't make me the maniac. You know, because when I slice, when I start slicing. When I start slicing. I slice like a hammer. What does that mean? Slice like a hammer. Yeah. Oh, those tapes are those are quality. So, yeah. Oh, Kenny, before we go, please let everybody know, you, you mentioned earlier, you have a Pandora station. Yeah. So if you go onto Pandora, you would say to your whatever you're using, or you can look it up and just put Kenny. They call it Kenny Sarah. The name is Sarah, but you have to say Kenny Sarah, S-A-K-E-N-N-Y-S-A-R-A, and the sounds of New Orleans on Pandora. Got your own station on there. Is it, and, we can, yeah. and then K-Care Music is online, right? Whoop, I dropped the camera. Keep talking. That was just a small technical glitch on my end. That's yeah, this that's what that's what it yeah. must look like if like your if your if your eyeballs popped out of your head and you, for a second and they're just dangling by the cord. You're like, I wonder if I could still see. Hey, when you're upside down, it's just that I was like Tom playing his horn trumpet upside. Down. <laughs> that was my little tribute to Tom yeah, Jefferson. To yeah, rest so, in peace. Yeah, so you know, SoundCloud is probably the that's where all the music is. There's, you know, some pictures and um, my site right now, I'm, I'm in the process of, of changing. So, but there, if you Google uh, Kenny Sarah, you, you'll find all the information there, pictures Ken- and, and everything. Kenny, it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, thanks for, oh, th- thanks thank for taking you. your time. Uh, I haven't seen you I, in, a, in a few years, but you look the same. Uh, you too. Get, well, I'm just fatter. Well, you haven't aged for maybe a couple of years now. I got the gray. I got the I got that the grays though. So get you some Grecian. Nah, I like to lean into it. You know, I'm like I'm, a true story. The other day, I was going to lunch. So one of my coworkers is very grumpy all the time. So I take him a, I take him a, a little snack to like kind of appease him, you know. So I went to Pollo Loco, or as we call it from the or as we call it on the streets, P Loke. I'm in line at Pollo Loco, and it's around the building, and I'm not going to make it to work on time. So I went off, and I got inside, and I ordered, and uh, I ordered the same thing all the time. Next thing I know, it's it's like it's it's less. So you know, I I'm not paying much attention. I give them the money. I look at the receipt. The guy gave me a senior discount. I'm not even. Wow. I'm not even fifty. <laughs> I'm not even fifty. <laughs> hey, listen, don't squawk about it because they do help, bro. Oh yeah, I didn't say anything. I didn't say a word. Yeah. You you never get the senior discount because you look you look the same. You look you're thirty five. Well, you know, when when I first got my AARP card, you know, I would use it, and then one time I think somebody says, "Let me see your ID." I said, "Really? Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that." They're Thank not you. gonna let you get. You think they're gonna let you get a ten cents off at Jack in the Box? You gotta show me your ID. That's yeah. A, yeah, yeah, show me my ID. My, my well, listen. Kenny, anytime. Uh, I, I want to have you back soon, and uh, 
and you know, my love to the to your daughter and 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 your mom. Next time you talk to her, I know she won't remember me, but uh, I'm glad to hear that she's she's doing well. Yeah, and I'm glad I'm glad everybody's doing well. I've been reading about your wonderful daughter. She's about to go to college. Yeah, she has one more year of school, and then you know we're gonna see. Wow. Yeah, so I'll be working till I die. So that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> If you need a if you need a band if, so, you, if you need a roadie, let so me know. Your, so your theme song should be working in the cold. Mike. That's it. We're, yeah, Lee Dorsey, Lee Dorsey. That was another one you guys used to kill. All right. Yeah. So Kenny, thanks a lot for so for Ken, you, for Kenny Sarah for myself. We say as always, transmission ends now, and unity. Unity.